Father, thank you that you are a God who speaks. You are not a dim, distant deity out there who somehow kicked everything off and sits at a distance. You are a God who comes to us. You are a God who speaks to us. You spoke supremely through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, But you, you speak through your word, Lord, in an ongoing way. So, Father, we ask that you would come to us now. Uh, And by your Holy Spirit, you would open up your word to us today that we might hear what you've got to say to us for our encouragement, for our provocation, for our transformation. Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, am I echoing or is that me? Echoing. (laughs) We're in trouble. We've got about six of them around the PA desk trying to fix it. Okay, we'll start anyway. Okay, we're in this series that you're doing on uh, Colossians. Do you remember the series on Colossians? Feels like it's a little bit sort of in the past, isn't it? Because a couple of weeks you've had looking at future plans for the church and then the European conference that uh, we were invited to be part of last week. But you are in a series on Colossians. And today we're looking at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 to 15. If you've got your Bibles and want to find that, please. It's this letter in in which the Apostle Paul is trying to keep these Christians in Colossae, these new Christians, on track in their faith, not led astray by by some of the isms and ologies that were going on around in their culture at that time and that were in danger of seeping into the church as well. Um, Steve Thomas shared two, three three weeks ago, whenever it was... uh, about how Paul had been urging the Colossians not to miss the point. That it was so easy to to get caught up in all the stuff that you could end up missing the main point. And the main point is Jesus. And actually in the passage that we're looking at today, Paul picks up on this same idea of not missing the point through being caught up by the ideas of the world, the culture around us, the setting around us, that we need to stay focused on Jesus. So let's read our passage together for today then. Colossians 2, 6 to 15, where Paul explores this idea a little bit further. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with a circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, 
and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. For when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Um, as Keith mentioned just a few minutes ago, most of you will know that we've got our own school. I think you were being prophetic, Keith, because we've got a picture of it. There it is with its new extension at this end, a great project over the years that it's been there. It's this end bit that's just been uh, added on. Fantastic school. My three girls went through it. I have to say they did really well uh, out of it academically, socially, spiritually. All this stuff about Christian schools overprotecting your kids, in my experience, is nonsense. Uh, my girls are well engaged in church, in mission, in evangelism. Um, it is not a protective thing, it is an equipping thing. And uh, at our King's School, particularly in the, it's primary and secondary, in the primary part, um, there, there's a little sort of quip goes around. It's been going around for, for years, really. Um, that whatever the question you were asked, the answer was? Jesus. The answer was Jesus. And they soon learned fairly quickly that, you know, if you said Jesus, you were in a, with a fair chance of getting the right answer. Of course, it's not quite like that. Uh, because, you know, 2 plus 2 doesn't equal Jesus. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Yeah, I know the mathematicians are going to come to me later and say, do you know there are some circumstances where 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 4? Do you know what? Most of us don't care. <laughs> For most of us, 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that's what keeps our bank books balanced. Okay. 2 plus 2 doesn't equal Jesus. 2 plus 2 equals 4. But it equals 4 because of Jesus. Because the Bible says that everything that exists was created by him and for him and through him and it's all heading towards him and he's the conclusion of it all and he gathers it all up. So actually their little theology of Jesus isn't a bad theology. It is all about Jesus. Life starts with him, goes through with him, finishes with him. It is all about Jesus. Jesus is the answer to everything. And that's something that these Colossian Christians desperately needed to hear, just to remind you of what you'll have seen earlier in the letter. They were being attracted. They were being enticed by some cultural ideas that were going around at that time. Early, what were called Gnostic ideas. And these early Gnostics, they... they the idea was, if you join our club, if you join our society, we will reveal to you the secret mysteries of life, the secrets that will help you bait, uh, break through in life. So they got all this purported secret wisdom and insights and mysteries. And, and Paul is eager to get them off that stuff back to Jesus, back to the simplicity of Jesus. And so I've 
called today's talk simply Back to Basics. Um, it's not a reference to Christine Aguilera's LP, nor to John Major's politics of whenever it was the 1990s. Back to the basics of Jesus. Three simple things that he wants to remind them about from this short passage that we're looking at today. The first... Oops. Shouldn't have done that. Should have come up one by one. But there you go. Not to worry. So you get to see all my first point all at once. There you go. Don't look ahead. Okay. His first point is this. In Christ... We are called. Look how he starts, verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. That little word live, the Bible uses a lot in both Old and New Testaments as a metaphor. Um, the, the actual, sorry, the actual Hebrew word there is walk rather than live. And it uses that image, walk, of this picture of a life shared with God. You know, it's a little bit more than live, it's walking. There you are, you're going through life and he's going there with you. Paul's saying here, just as you started this journey with God, with Jesus, when you responded to his call, keep it up. Keep doing it. Now, I think there are two things in Paul's mind here. First reveal. I think he's thinking, first of all, of how we received Christ at the level of experience. Okay, I want you to stop for a minute. I want you to think back to when you became a Christian. For some of you, it would have been fairly instant, dramatic. For some of you, over a little period of time until the penny eventually dropped. But if I were to ask you, when the penny dropped for you about who Jesus was and what he had done for your life, what one word summed up how you felt at that time. Okay, I'd like some answers now. Joy, joyful. Joyful? Grateful, good. Relief, oh, that's a good one. Joyful, grateful, relieved. Again? Freedom. Indifference. <laughs> Again? Sensitive. Tentative. You better explain that one. I take too long, or I will leave that one in. What Paul's saying is this. I hope they've got more answers out there, but or I better change this to a gospel message this morning. Paul said, can you think back to what it was like when you first became a Christian. I might not have been instantly on that day, but the sort of stuff that was going on in you, and he's saying, just as you receive Jesus as Lord, live in him like that. If, if, you, if you felt grateful, for goodness sake, don't lose your gratitude. Don't lose your liberty. Don't lose that sense of freedom. Don't lose that sense of, God's with me. Don't lose it. As you receive Christ Jesus, your Lord, so... Live in him. But second, because our faith is not just an emotional, experiential thing, second, I think, is thinking about how we received Christ 
at the level of truth. He says here, so then just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him. And the word that he uses there for received, it was a technical word. Let's, let's take a tissue box. It was, it was a Greek word for the faithful receiving of a tradition that you'd been given and a, and a guarding of it. And it would be as if I, let's imagine this is the truth of Jesus. Now, you received it. Careful. Don't, don't. And now, what are you going to do with it? I hope he's going to pass it on. Yeah, yeah, when she's received it, and are you going to pass on what you know about Jesus as well, Helen? Yeah, great. And, okay, and it's still the same tissue box. But people are making it live and real for themselves. What Paul's saying here is, look, there was a certain truth about Jesus that you received when you understood the gospel. And we aren't free to change that to make it what we want to be. We aren't free to change it in the light of the latest cultural trend, in the light of the latest paperback book. And then, oh, yeah, that'd be quite nice to make Jesus like that. No, how did you receive him? That's how I want you to live. That's what I want you to keep hold of. Not the Jesus of our own creation, our own desires, our own coolness, our own trends. Do you know, Jesus is the Jesus of history. I hope we know that. He's the Jesus of history. He's the Jesus of the New Testament. He's the Jesus of the book. And this Jesus, he's up for being explained in ways that our modern culture can understand, but he's not up for being explained away. For being changed, because, well, you know, in our culture, we can't believe that sort of stuff anymore. And he's saying, come on, I want to get you back to Jesus, to your experience of him, to that truth about him, the absolutes, the things that you received as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, so live in him. Live in that Jesus. And then don't just settle for that, because he then wants people to build on that and to develop that as well. That's the foundation of what they've got. We're to build on it, get it getting called by Jesus isn't the be-all and end-all. It's not a time now to put on your spiritual ship slippers. Oh, that's great. I'm a Christian now. Good. There we go. Shoes off, slippers on. Oh, it is nice coming to the odd meeting. It's really, really good. No. He says there's stuff I want to make sure happens in your life now. Three key verbs in verses 6 and 7. Just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. Here's the first, rooted. Here's the importance of our doing the stuff that gets our roots down deep in Jesus. We live in a culture where um, we like things fairly quickly. Even at my age, I've discovered I get annoyed if it takes two seconds for a page to load on my computer. Are you like that? And you start thinking, come on, come on. And you can see the little progress bar going, mm, waiting forever. It's about four seconds, you know. 
We, we live in a really fast, instant age. We want everything now. But do you know what? You don't become mature in Jesus now. There is a progress bar, but it, it, it takes life. And it needs input. And some of the input it just never changes. One of them's called praying and talking to Jesus. Another one's called reading your Bible. <sighs> We're going back to that stuff. Yeah, sorry, that's what Paul's doing with us. He's taking us back to that stuff. And, and we're never going to grow, we're never going to develop, we're never going to be equipped to be a missional community if we haven't got some roots in this Jesus and we aren't feeding those roots. Rooted, built up, strengthened, similar imagery there. Now that's one of the reasons why it's important to come together on a Sunday morning like this. This is one of the times, not the only time, but one of the key times when together we get strengthened in our faith together. Paul talks a lot in his letters about people being mutually strengthened in their faith. Coming together on a Sunday morning is a key part of being strengthened. Will a lightning bolt from heaven come and smite thee, yea, verily? If you have a Sunday off and you have a lie-in, no. But I'll tell you what, if it becomes part of a lifestyle... Don't be surprised if you, you're not growing as, as a Christian and, you, and you're not going somewhere. By the way, I'm going to throw something in about Sundays because there can be a bit of a trend these days to say, do you know what? Sundays is not that important, really, is it? We don't, as, as long as we get some sort of fellowship. Well, since we're talking about going back to roots, I thought I'd throw this in as a hand grenade and then run. Um, do you know what? I think Sunday is quite important. I think the Bible thinks Sunday is quite important. And by the way, please don't read into that the old miserable Sunday that I grew up with, whereby you go to church twice on a Sunday, preferably three times if you can get it in, and you don't do anything that's enjoyable. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about Sunday as a day of, first of all, rest, refreshment, not doing the normal stuff you do in the week, having a day's break, creation principle, Right back to Genesis. But also a day for gathering together to find strength in worship. Have you ever wondered why the first Christians moved 1,400 years of tradition as their worship day? For 1,400 years since Moses was giving the law, the Sabbath was assigned as the days when Jews met. And shortly after the resurrection, the first Christians started to do something pretty amazing. They moved their gathering worship day from the Sabbath, Saturday, to Sunday, to what's called in the New Testament again and again, the first day of the week. Why? Because they felt celebrating resurrection day was really important. And all I would throw out is this, is if those first Christians who were so close to Jesus could overturn 1,400 years of tradition and make this a special day to celebrate resurrection. I think we dismiss that or diss it or whatever to our loss. I'll get back to my sermon now. It's gone very quiet, so that's hit home somewhere. Rooted, strengthened, overflowing. 
here's the third thing that he wants. This is to do with mission. Do you know, mission fires passion. If we wait till we are fired up enough in Jesus before we reach out, we'll wait a long time. Because we will always want a little bit more, a little bit more. I'm not quite ready yet. I'm not quite ready yet. And what I've experienced is when you actually go out doing mission, I don't mean going abroad. I mean doing the stuff, sharing Jesus, missional communities at work. When you do the stuff, you are so pushed into God, you get passionate. Anybody else ever discovered that? It's being pushed out on the edge that fires passion, not just waiting for something to happen. Oh, it's in Christ you were called, he reminds them. Don't drift away from Jesus, the Jesus who called you, however many years, months ago it was. Remember the Jesus of your experience. Remember the Jesus of truth as he's revealed in this book and and then get rooted and grounded and strengthened and overflowing in all of that. Yeah, it's all about Jesus. Second, I suspect it's all going to come up again. Oh, good. It's in Christ we are complete. This is verses 8 to 12. Now, remember the background of these Colossian Christians. They were being told that Jesus wasn't enough. For goodness sake, how in our culture today can you really think that a simple message about Jesus can make a difference? How do you think a simple message about Jesus is going to reach cultured, thoughtful people of today? And that's what they were saying, by the way. Come on, a simple message of Jesus can't possibly work today in our culture, can it? So look what Paul says. Can't work. Verse 8, have you forgotten that in Christ all the fullness of the Godhead dwells in bodily form? Sorry, I've read the wrong verse. Verse 8. See to it that... No- oh, I should put my glasses on. Liz keeps saying, why don't you wear them all the time? Vanity. Okay. See to it that no one takes you captive, sorry, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than Christ. What Paul is saying here is that any teaching, any emphasis, any so-called revelation that detracts from Jesus doesn't liberate us, it enslaves us. He uses quite a powerful word there, actually, in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. It's the word that was used in New Testament times of a slave trader grabbing someone and taking them off and selling them as a slave. I suppose a modern equivalent of that would be with thinking about the, um, the sex slavery that happens, sadly even here in our own country, where these sex traders go often to Eastern European countries and promise these girls all sorts of stuff. We'll give you a home, we'll give you a job, you'll be a good place to live, yeah? And they make all those promises, they get them on a plane, they get them to London, and instantly they suddenly find themselves under a pimp and in a brothel, and they can't get away. 
And it promised so much, and they ended up trapped. That's the picture Paul's got here. He's saying, you do know, don't you, that there are things in life that look like they promise much, and they'll be really nice to you on the journey till they've got you, and you're suddenly caught up. You suddenly find yourself enslaved with what he calls here human traditions, basic principles of this world. A bit hard to translate that from the Greek. Elemental spirits. What he's saying is there is some stuff in life behind which demonic powers operate. It's not just, you know, that whole sexual slave trade stuff. Yeah, it's a human thing. Money, etc., sex. But you do realize, don't you, behind that, Paul would say, there's demonic powers at work. And it's not just that, there's a whole host of things in life that demonic powers are at work behind, trying to lure us into why? So it weakens our faith in Jesus. Paul's desperate here that they see that, learn how to stand against it. Now, some of that stuff is overt. I just used one example of slavery there that's very overt. Much more of it is subtle, enticing, and reasonable, which is why we don't see it very often. And Paul's saying they might look subtle and nice and reasonable, but they aren't Jesus and his gospel. I was trying to think of an example, and whatever you pick, it feels like you're getting at it, but let me pick one that I do myself, so it's not getting at anybody. But let me take something that is good and whole and reasonable. Let me take recycling. I think it's good to look after our world, don't you? One person thinks it's good to look after our world. Are you dead today, or are you there? You still there? Okay. Do you think looking after our world is a good thing? Okay, Crispin, where are you? Wherever you've gone, you're not wasting your time going to Wales to develop that stuff. That's good. I think recycling's good. I think that green, that aspect of stuff in light is good. It's taking care of our world. And I do it. Liz and I are actually, we, even at our age, we've got quite good. We hardly throw anything away. Most of it's recycled. This tiny little bag every fortnight that we throw out. So I, I do this stuff. But what, it is possible, for example, to get so caught up in green and recycling that you spend more time on that than Jesus. I chose that example because I'm not getting at you, because I I do, I think it's important. But do you hear what I'm after there? It is possible to get so caught up with stuff that looks, it is good. But if you were to add up, how much time did I spend this week doing my recycling or whatever, and how much time did I spend reading my Bible? If there's an imbalance there, something perhaps not quite right. I'm going to say something else, and please don't see this negatively, but as you develop missional communities, which I am for, which I am for, which I am for, okay, lest you misunderstand, be careful that what you end up doing, you know, you decide, I'm, I'm going to have a missional stamp club. You're a stamp collector, and you think it's great. We're going to have missional stamp collecting. Fantastic! If that's what you're into, great! 
Go and find some people out there who love stamp collecting and get them drawn in. But listen, it's not about stamp collecting at the end of the day. It's about Jesus. It's about using this and having fun. But for what purpose? To draw them to Jesus. So we need to find ways. That doesn't mean the first time someone comes to your meeting, you say, excuse me, do you know about Jesus? No, of course not. But it's about not losing the goal. And these Colossian Christians were in danger of so getting caught up with other stuff, they were in danger of losing the goal. It's only in Christ that we are complete, not in other things. And Paul goes on to say, why would you want all this extra stuff anyway when, now I'm at verse 9, when in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form? That's one of the clearest uh, statements about the divinity of Christ in the whole of the New Testament. Couldn't be clearer. In dealing with Jesus, we are dealing with no one less than God himself. And I'm sorry, that probably upsets Muslims. But tough, because that's what my Bible and my Jesus claim. And we can't back off it. We can't make him less than that so as not to offend people. Paul hasn't finished. Because what he says, look, this is not just true for Jesus. What is true for Jesus also affects you. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Why would you want to go running to other things to find fulfillment in life, like some of these Colossian Christians were doing, to, to top up what you find in Jesus when... All that God has for you is there in Jesus. In Jesus, you are complete. In Jesus, you really do have everything you need in life. Through Jesus, you really do have access to all the resources for that purpose for which God has called you in life. King School Prime is right. The answer is Jesus. In him we're called. In him we're Complete, and he just finishes that section off in verses 11 and 12 by saying, you know, and if you doubt that, just remember your baptism in verses 11 and 12. These Gnostic people were, they were trying to get the Colossian Christian. Gnosticism, one of the things about it was this, was your body didn't matter. What mattered was your soul, your spirit inside you, and what you need is our secrets so your spirit can be freed from this body that holds you down and be freed to real life, life that matters. Your, your real soul is trapped inside this body of yours and, and you need a new birth to, to come into that new life. Paul says, what utter tosh? That's the sort of living Bible translation of it. What a tosh. For goodness sake, didn't you get baptized? Well, what did we do when we baptized you, he's saying here? We took you, and obviously this image only makes sense if he's thinking about believers' baptism, by the way. What did we do when we baptized? We took you, we put you under the water as a symbol that you were what? Dead, buried, old life, finished with. 
And we pulled you out of that water as a symbol that you are now alive in Christ. Hello? Um, what are you doing listening to these people saying that you're still dead? You were dead. You're alive. Remember your baptism? Do you know what? I can still remember my baptism. It was about 3,000 years ago. <laughs> and I remember it. I remember the old Baptist pastor who did it and his false teeth that didn't fit. And he used to fall out and he'd lose his false teeth in the middle of it just when he was praying. But he was 80-odd when he baptised me. He was visiting speaker. We didn't have our own pastor in that little Baptist church where I got saved when I was 18. And he got a grip like iron. And he took your hands and you thought, I ain't going away from here, am I? <laughs> He's done a few of these. <laughs> Michael, in the name of Jesus Christ, I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I can still remember the waters rushing over me as I went there. Anybody else remember their baptism? Oh, he said, remember your baptism. Remember your baptism. When you're tempted to think Jesus is not enough, when you're tempted to think there's something else that can give you more life, remember your baptism and remember that you died to your old life and the Spirit of Jesus is with you to help you start living a new life. What more do you need? And he was probably as excited as that as well. I suppose I ought to say you've not yet been baptized. Why not come and talk with you? Steve about that at the end of the meeting because it is a powerful demonstration that you have done with your old life and of the spirit of God coming into you in Christ we're called wasn't anybody else who called it, it was him simply him in Christ we're complete having Thought my PowerPoint had come up first time. I've forgotten to keep advancing. Third. In Christ, we are conquerors. The last few verses, and with this we've finished. Verses 13 to 15. Paul develops now this idea of freedom that Christ has won for us, that becomes ours as we trust in him and express that through baptism. And he gives us three areas in life where we have been set free. Three areas that make a big difference to how we live, if only we will grasp them. The first is, he says that in Christ, we are free from sin's penalty. Verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Friends, here is the wonder of the Christian gospel that we can sometimes take for granted, but we must remember it. So many people in the world and in our country feel they, they've got to sort out their life first before they can come to God. A number of times I've been told that over the years, oh, when I get my life sorted out a little bit more, I'll perhaps come on Alpha. Um, when I've done this, I'll, I'll perhaps come and visit your church one Sunday. When, when I've 
sort of spruce myself up a little bit and I'm decent enough to come into church, I'll, I'll come. And the wonder of the Christian gospel is, as Paul puts it in Romans, is that it is while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. Amen? He didn't wait till you were sorted out, brushed up, cleaned up, polished up, shined up. Christ came and died for us while we were still sinners. And he freed us from sin's penalty. What is sin's penalty? Death. The wages of sin, the Bible says, is death. Not just physical death, we all die one day. Spiritual death, that sense of being cut off from God, from worthwhileness in life. And while we were still sinners... Christ came and died for us. What an amazing God. Doesn't wait for us to sort ourselves out. Do you know that is still true for us as Christians today? He doesn't wait for you as a Christian even to sort yourself out before he'll come and help you. That's the gospel. The whole point of the gospel is he comes and helps you because you can't sort yourself out. Both to become a Christian and to live as a Christian. He frees us from sin's penalty. Second, he frees us from the law's demands in verse 14. Having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. That term there, the, the written code, was a Jewish technical term. It literally meant a handwritten note. But by New Testament times, it was a phrase that was used for a handwritten note of debt. So if Keith Elmey had borrowed 50 quid from me, I would write out handwritten note to prove it was authentic. Keith Elmey has borrowed 50 pounds from Mike Bowman and must pay it by the end of March. And then you would list, and if not, Mike is hereby permitted to take his... Ah, good looks. No, no, we don't want to. Um, it'd be a handwritten note. That's the word he uses here. What he's saying is, do you know what? It was as if there was a handwritten note by God himself listing every debt that you've got. Every little thing where you didn't come up to perfection, everything where you failed, everything you wanted to do and you didn't make it, it was as if there was this long, long handwritten note by God of all your debts to him. And when Jesus died on the cross, Paul says, Jesus took that note and he cancelled the written code. He cancelled it. The word means spiked. I'm old enough to remember that when you went to pay a bill, you didn't do it online. Yeah, Eileen's doing it. You took your bill. And there'd perhaps be two copies. One would be stamped as paid. And their copy would be, there'd be this wooden block with a spike sticking up. Come on, who remembers this? I'm not the only one. Three of you. No, okay. A few more. With this, and you got your paper and you pushed it over the spike. And it was spiked. And it meant it was paid for. That was it. That's the picture Paul uses here. No matter how long your list of debts was at the cross, Jesus took it and he spiked it for you. On God's behalf. He said it's all paid for. If you're here this morning, by the way, and you don't know this for yourself, maybe you've been starting to visit the church and been exploring a bit about Jesus, but you don't know yet that your 
failings, your sin, your shortcomings have been spiked by Jesus. Please come and talk to one of us at the end. Let us explain to you what Jesus did for you and how you can make this yourself. Freed from the law's demands, the law's ought to, the law's you ought to live like this and yet we can't. We just end up with this long list of things where we failed and Jesus takes those demands and that list of unpaid debt, those regulations, technical term again for for God's laws, he takes them and he spikes them. He takes all the orders of life and he spikes them. If you're still living as a Christian at the level of to, there's something wrong. Because Jesus is what helps us change to to want to. Third, finally, he frees us from Satan's power. Verse 15, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. This is one of my favorite images in the whole of the Old Testament, uh, New Testament, sorry. And uh, it's a picture that would have been really well understood by anyone reading this in New Testament times, it's the picture of the Roman triumph. When a Roman triumph, with a capital T if you like, was when a general had won such a great victory, he was entitled to come back into the city and the supreme place for it was in Rome itself. He would come back into Rome and the Senate would award him a triumph. We might say a victory procession. But it was like a victory procession like nothing you'd ever had before because there'd be this whole procession that would go into Rome and at the front there would be the Roman soldiers dressed not in their battle gear but in their, you know, what do you call it? Their dress gear. And they would be marching into Rome with all their banners and everything. And there would be the trumpeters behind them, blasting. And behind the trumpeters, there were always dancing girls. I was thinking of acting this out, but I think you're too dead this morning to <laughs> risk it. So, so there'd be all the dancing girls. So you've got your marching soldiers, and you've got your trumpeters, and you've got your dancing girls, and there's joy, and the crowds are shouting and cheering. And then there'd be more soldiers. And behind the soldiers would be the captive soldiers from the other enemy. Not all of them, they killed most of them, but they keep some, and there they would be in chains and shackles, beaten and bloodied, and they were trudging along behind these Roman soldiers. And behind these defeated soldiers would be the chariot in which the conquering general would stand. Surveying all that he had conquered and behind him more trumpets and dancing girls and, and, and there would be this glorious procession and he as the via triumphalis the conquering man was his technical term there he would be in his chariot looking down on these conquered soldiers and Paul says it's what Jesus did for you took every enemy, everything that was against you, and he defeated them at the cross, and he put them in his victory procession. 
That's where they are. That's where they belong. They're not utterly done away with yet. That doesn't come till the end. But there they are, conquered, defeated. Christ is triumphant over them. And you are in his victory procession. There's nothing that Jesus hasn't overcome for you. Little wonder, he says, the answer's Jesus. Very simple, really. And you can have all the theology you like, and I love theology, and I love reading, and I love studying, but you know what? Even when I get to the end of all my theology books, the answer is Jesus. It just comes back to him, not to the stuff and the stuff that goes around him, but to Jesus. And you are more than conquerors in him this morning. Back to basics. Paul simply saying, what more do we need than Jesus? Just want to remind you this morning, in Jesus, you're called. It's him that did it, not you. In Jesus, you complete. There's, there's nothing more you need. No latest revelations, insights, mysteries shaping into our culture. In Jesus, you're conquerors. Thanks be to God, Paul says in Romans, for his inexpressible gift. The answer really is Jesus. Thank you, Mike. Uh, that's true. It is all about Jesus. And I think it's just helpful for me to, to add a little thing this morning in the light of where we're at as a church at the moment. As we've been talking about our strategy of missional communities, uh, I guess that's provided a season in which we've talked a lot about what we need to do. And as Mike's just uh, explained to us, we've been freed as Christians from having to ought to do things. Uh, when we talk about the strategy that God's given us for what we need to do, it's easy for that to become an ought to kind of a thing. And I just wanted, to, wanted us to pause this morning and have the opportunity to pray and to worship God now and to remember that in all that we are talking about with mission, that mission exists because worship doesn't. Yeah? We're, God deserves to be worshipped and we're made to love him and to enjoy him forever. And the motive that we have for getting out and doing things and meeting people and sharing the word of God and praying for people is actually that they might enjoy what we've got, which is a relationship with God. That's what it's all about. And if we get caught up in gosh, I've got this thing to organize and this meeting to go to and those people to think about and bits of paper to produce and goodness me. And we end up just with lots of activity. Then we've kind of forfeited our birthright somewhere along the way because <laughs> it, it's all about Jesus and it's about us relating to him. And if we don't relate to him, then the purpose of the whole thing ceases anyway. So I'm glad that we're looking at the book of Colossians. I'm glad that it reminds us that it's all about Jesus. And I'm glad that we've got a bit of time now in which to respond to that and 
the best way that we have to respond to the fact that it's all about him is to worship him, to do the thing that we're going to be doing for eternity. Oh, it'll be a different band. Um, well, they, um, it'll be some different songs uh, but it's, it's a privilege for us this morning to be able to follow this band and to sing these songs as we offer our worship to him it's what we're made for it's what we're made. if there's anything that is the core of our life together it's this it's as we worship that I love that phrase that it's like we're bound up on the inside. We're, we're brought together as a person. As, um, it was being read out earlier about how all things come together in Christ. The truth is that for each of us, we are somewhat fragmented as people. I sometimes think this, and I sometimes think that, and I feel that, but I haven't quite got the strength for it. Who we are as people, as me, I, myself, come together in God's presence as I wait on Him. I become the person that God has made me to be. I become who I really am. As I connect to Christ, 